Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with post-scarcity anarchism and a chapter on technology, the pros and cons, and how there are definitely both. So let's get started. The Potentialities of Modern Technology Let me try to answer these questions by pointing to a new feature of modern technology. For the first time in history, technology has reached an open end. The potential for technological development, for providing machines as substitutes for labor, is virtually unlimited. Technology has finally passed from the realm of invention to that of design. In other words, from fortuitous discoveries to systemic innovations. The meaning of this qualitative advance has been stated in a rather freewheeling way by Vannevar Bush, the former director of the Office of Scientific Research and Development. Quote, Suppose, 50 years ago, that someone had proposed making a device which would cause an automobile to follow a white line down the middle of the road, automatically, and even if the driver fell asleep. He would have been laughed at, and his idea would have been called preposterous. So it would have been then. But suppose someone called for such a device today, and was willing to pay for it. Leaving aside the question of whether it would actually be of any genuine use whatever. Any number of concerns would stand ready to contract and build it. No real invention would be required. There are thousands of young men in the country to whom the design of such a device would be a pleasure. They would simply take off the shelf some photocells, thermionic tubes, servo mechanisms, relays, and, if urged, they would build what they call a breadboard model, and it would work. The point is that the presence of a host of versatile, cheap, reliable gadgets, and the presence of men who understand fully all their queer ways has rendered the building of automatic devices almost straightforward and routine. It is no longer a question of whether they can be built, it is rather a question of whether they are worth building. End quote. Citation 14. Bush focuses here on the two most important features of the new, so-called, second industrial revolution namely the enormous potentialities of modern technology and the cost-oriented, non-human limitations that are imposed upon it. I shall not belabor the fact that the cost factor, the profit motive, to state it bluntly, inhibits the use of technological innovations. It is fairly well established that in many areas of the economy it is cheaper to use labor than machines. Footnote 25 Instead, I would like to review several developments which have brought us to an open end in technology and deal with a number of practical applications that have profoundly affected the role of labour in industry and agriculture. Perhaps the most obvious development leading to the new technology has been the increasing interpenetration of scientific abstraction, mathematics, and analytic methods with the concrete pragmatic, and rather mundane tasks of industry. This order of relationships is relatively new. Traditionally, speculation, generalization, and rational activity were sharply divorced from technology. This chasm reflected the sharp split between the leisured and working classes in ancient and medieval society. 
If one leaves aside the inspired works of a few rare men, applied science did not come into its own until the Renaissance, and it only began to flourish in the 18th and 19th centuries. The men who personify the application of science to technological innovation are not the inventive tinkerers like Edison, but the systematic investigators with Catholic interests like Faraday, who adds simultaneously to man's knowledge of scientific principles and to engineering. In our own day, this synthesis, once embodied by the work of a single, inspired genius, is the work of anonymous teams. Although these teams have obvious advantages, they often have all the traits of bureaucratic agencies, which leads to a mediocre, unimaginative treatment of problems. Less obvious is the impact produced by industrial growth. This impact is not always technological. It is more than the substitution of machines for human labor. One of the most effective means of increasing output, in fact, has been the continual reorganization of the labor process, extending and sophisticating the division of labor. Ironically, the steady breakdown of tasks to ever more inhuman dimensions, to an intolerably minute, fragmented series of operations, and to a cruel simplification of the work process, suggests the machine that will recombine all the separate tasks of many workers into a single, mechanized operation. Historically, it would be difficult to understand how mechanized mass manufacture emerged, how the machine increasingly displaced labor, without tracing the development of the work process from craftsmanship where an independent, highly skilled worker engages in many diverse operations, through the purgatory of the factory, where these diverse tasks are parceled out among a multitude of unskilled or semi-skilled employees to the highly mechanized mill, where the tasks of many are largely taken over by machines manipulated by a few operatives, and finally to the automated and cybernated plant where operatives are replaced by supervisory technicians and highly skilled maintenance men. Looking further into the matter, we find still another new development. The machine has evolved from an extension of human muscles into an extension of the human nervous system. In the past, both tools and machines enhanced man's muscular power over raw materials and natural forces. Mechanical devices and engines developed during the 18th and 19th centuries did not replace human muscles, but rather enlarged their effectiveness. Although the machines increased output enormously, the workers' muscles and brain were still required to operate them, even for fairly routine tasks. The calculus of technological advance could be formulated in strict terms of labor productivity. One man, using a given machine, produced as many commodities as 5, 10, 50, or 100 before the machine was employed. Nasmith's steam hammer, exhibited in 1851, could shape iron beams with only a few blows, an effort that would have required many man-hours of labor without the machine but the hammer required the muscles and judgment of half a dozen able-bodied men to pull, hold, and remove the casting. In time, much of this work was diminished by the invention of handling devices, 
but the labor and judgment involved in operating the machines formed an indispensable part of the productive process. The development of fully automatic machines for complex mass manufacturing operations requires the successful application of at least three technological principles. Such machines must have a built-in ability to correct their own errors. They must have sensory devices for replacing the visual, auditory, and tactile senses of the worker. And finally, they must have devices that substitute for the worker's judgment, skill, and memory. The effective use of these three principles presupposes that we have also developed the technological means, the effectors, if you will, for applying the sensory, control, and mind-like devices in everyday industrial operation. Further, effective use presupposes that we can adapt existing machines or develop new ones for handling, shaping, assembling, packaging, and transporting semi-finished and finished products. The use of automatic, self-correcting control devices in industrial operations is not new. James Watt's Flyball Governor, invented in 1788, provides an early mechanical example of how steam engines were self-regulated. The governor, which is attached by metal arms to the engine valve, consists of two freely mounted metal balls supported by a thin rotating rod. If the engine begins to operate too rapidly, the increased rotation of the rod impels the balls outward by centrifugal force, closing the valve. Conversely, if the valve does not admit sufficient steam to operate the engine at the desired rate, the balls collapse inward, opening the valve further. A similar principle is involved in the operation of thermostatically controlled heating equipment. The thermostat, manually preset by a dial to a desired temperature level, automatically starts up heating equipment when the temperature falls and turns off the equipment when the temperature rises. Birth control devices illustrate what is now called the feedback principle. In modern electronic equipment, the deviation of a machine from a desired level of operation produces electrical signals, which are then used by the control device to correct the deviation or error. The electrical signals induced by the error are amplified and fed back by the control system to other devices which adjust the machine. A control system in which a departure from the norm is actually used to adjust a machine is called a closed system. This may be contrasted with an open system, a manually operated wall switch, or the arms that automatically rotate an electrical fan, in which the control operates without regard to the function of the device. Thus, if the wall switch is flicked, electrical lights go on or off, whether it is night or day. Similarly, the electric fan will rotate at the same speed whether a room is warm or cool. The fan may be automatic in the popular sense of the term, but it is not self-regulating like the flyball governor and the thermostat. An important step toward developing self-regulating control mechanisms was the discovery of sensory devices. Today these include thermocouples, photoelectric cells, x-ray machines, television cameras, and radar transmitters. Used together or singly, they provide machines with an amazing degree of autonomy. 
Even without computers, these sensory devices make it possible for workers to engage in extremely hazardous operations by remote control. They can also be used to turn many traditional open systems into closed ones, thereby expanding the scope of automatic operations. For example, an electric light controlled by a clock represents a fairly simple open system. Its effectiveness depends entirely upon mechanical factors. Regulated by a photoelectric cell that turns it off when daylight approaches, the light responds to daily variations in sunrise and sunset. Its operation is now meshed with its function. With the advent of the computer, we enter an entirely new dimension of industrial control systems. The computer is capable of performing all the routine tasks that ordinarily burdened the mind of the worker a generation or so ago. Basically, the modern digital computer is an electronic calculator capable of performing arithmetical operations enormously faster than the human brain. Footnote 26. This element of speed is a crucial factor. The enormous rapidity of computer systems a quantitative superiority of computer over human calculations has profound qualitative significance. By virtue of its speed, the computer can perform highly sophisticated mathematical and logical operations. Supported by memory units that store millions of bits of information and using binary arithmetic, the substitution of the digits 0 and 1 for the digits 0 through 9 a properly programmed digital computer can perform operations that approximate many highly developed logical activities of the mind. It is arguable whether computer intelligence is, or ever will be, creative or innovative, although every few years brings sweeping changes in computer technology, but there is no doubt that the digital computer is capable of taking over all the onerous and distinctly uncreative mental tasks of man in industry, science, engineering, information retrieval, and transportation. Modern man, in effect, has produced an electronic mind for coordinating, building, and evaluating most of his routine industrial operations. Properly used within the sphere of competence for which they are designed, computers are faster and more efficient than man himself. What is the concrete significance of this new industrial revolution? What are its immediate and foreseeable implications for work? Let us trace the impact of the new technology on the work process by examining its application to the manufacture of automobile engines at the Ford plant in Cleveland. This single instance of technological sophistication will help us assess the liberatory potential of the new technology in all manufacturing industries. Until the advent of cybernation in the automobile industry, the Ford plant required about 300 workers, using a large variety of tools and machines, to turn an engine block into an engine. The process from foundry casting to a fully machined engine took many man-hours to perform. With the development of what we commonly call an automated machine system, the time required to transform the casting into an engine was reduced to less than 15 minutes. Aside from a few monitors to watch the automatic control panels, the original 300-man labor force was eliminated. 
Later, a computer was added to the machining system, turning it into a truly closed, cybernated system. The computer regulates the entire machining process, operating on an electronic pulse that cycles at a rate of three-tenths of a millionth of a second. But even this system is obsolete. Quote, The next generation of computing machines operates a thousand times as fast, at a pulse rate of one in every three-tenths of a billionth of a second, observes Alice Mary Hilton. Speeds of millionths and billionths of a second are not really intelligible to our finite minds, but we can certainly understand that the advance has been a thousandfold within a year or two. A thousand times as much information can be handled, or the same amount of information can be handled a thousand times as fast. A job that takes more than 16 hours can be done in one minute, and without any human intervention. Such a system does not control merely an assembly line, but a complete manufacturing and industrial process. End quote. Citation 15. There is no reason why the basic technological principles involved in cybernating, the manufacture of automobile engines, cannot be applied to virtually every area of mass manufacture, from the metallurgical industry to the food processing industry, from the electronics industry to the toy making industry from the manufacture of prefabricated bridges to the manufacture of prefabricated houses. Many phases of steel production, tool and die making, electronic equipment manufacture, and industrial chemical production are now partly or largely automated. What tends to delay the advance of complete automation to every phase of modern industry is the enormous cost involved in replacing existing industrial facilities by new, more sophisticated ones, and also the innate conservatism of many major corporations. Finally, as I mentioned before, it is still cheaper to use labor instead of machines in many industries. To be sure, every industry has its own particular problems, and the application of a toilless technology to a specific plant would doubtless reveal a multitude of kinks that would require painstaking solutions. In many industries, it would be necessary to alter the shape of the product and the layout of the plants so that the manufacturing process would lend itself to automated techniques. But to argue from these problems that the application of a fully automated technology to a specific industry is impossible would be as preposterous as to have argued 80 years ago that flight was impossible because the propeller of an experimental airplane did not resolve fast enough, or the frame was too fragile to withstand buffeting by the wind. There is practically no industry that cannot be fully automated if we are willing to redesign the product, the plant, the manufacturing procedures, and the handling methods. In fact, any difficulty in describing how, where, or when a given industry will be automated arises not from the unique problems we can expect to encounter, but rather from the enormous leaps that occur every few years in modern technology. Almost every account of applied automation today must be regarded as provisional. As soon as one describes a partially automated industry, technological advances make the description obsolete. 
There is one area of the economy, however, in which any form of technological advance is worth describing. The area of work that is most brutalizing and degrading for man. If it is true that the moral level of a society can be gauged by the way it treats women, its sensitivity to human suffering can be gauged by the working conditions it provides for people in raw materials industries, particularly in mines and quarries. In the ancient world, mining was often a form of penal servitude, reserved primarily for the most hardened criminals, the most intractable slaves, and the most hated prisoners of war. The mine is the day-to-day actualization of man's image of hell. It is a deadening, dismal, inorganic world that demands pure, mindless toil. Quote, Field and forest and stream and ocean are the environment of life. The mine is the environment alone of ores, minerals, metals, writes Lewis Mumford. In hacking and digging the contents of the earth, the miner has no eye for the forms of things. What he sees is sheer matter, and until he gets to his vein, it is only an obstacle which he breaks through stubbornly and sends up to the surface. If the miner sees shapes on the walls of his cavern as the candle flickers, they are only the monstrous distortions of his pick or his arm, shapes of fear. Day has been abolished and the rhythm of nature broken. Continuous day and night production first came into existence here. The miner must work by artificial light even though the sun be shining outside. Still further down in the seams, he must work by artificial ventilation too, a triumph of the manufactured environment. Citation 16. The abolition of mining as a sphere of human activity would symbolize, in its own way, the triumph of a liberatory technology. That we can point to this achievement already, even in a single case at this writing, presages the freedom from toil implicit in the technology of our time. The first major step in this direction was the continuous miner, a giant cutting machine with nine-foot blades that slices up eight tons of coal a minute from the coal face. It was this machine, together with mobile loading machines, power drills, and roof bolting, that reduced mine employment in areas like West Virginia to about a third of the 1948 levels, at the same time nearly doubling individual output. The coal mines still required miners to place and operate the machines. The most recent technological advances, however, replace the operators by radar-sensing devices and eliminate the miner completely. By adding sensing devices to automatic machinery, we could easily remove the worker not only from the large, productive mines needed by the economy, but also from forms of agricultural activity patterned on modern industry. Although the wisdom of industrializing and mechanizing agriculture is highly questionable, I shall return to this subject at a later point, the fact remains that if society so chooses, it can automate large areas of industrial agriculture, ranging from cotton picking to rice harvesting. We could operate almost any machine, from a giant shovel in an open-strip mine to a grain harvester in the Great Plains, either by cybernated sensing devices 
or by remote control with television cameras. The effort needed to operate these devices and machines at a safe distance, in comfortable quarters, would be minimal, assuming that a human operator were required at all. It is easy to foresee a time, by no means remote, when a rationally organized economy could automatically manufacture small, packaged factories without human labor. Parts could be produced with so little effort that most maintenance tasks would be reduced to the simple act of removing a defective unit from a machine and replacing it by another. A job no more difficult than pulling out and putting in a tray. Machines would make and repair most of the machines required to maintain such a highly industrialized economy. Such a technology, oriented entirely toward human needs and freed from the all-consideration of profit and loss, would eliminate the pain of want and toil. The penalty, inflicted in the form of denial, suffering and inhumanity, exacted by a society based on scarcity and labor. The possibilities created by a cybernated technology would no longer be limited merely to the satisfaction of man's material needs. We would be free to ask how the machine, the factory, and the mine could be used to foster human solidarity, and to choose a balanced relationship with nature and a truly organic eco-community. Would our new technology be based on the same national division of labor that exists today? The current type of industrial organization, an extension in fact of the industrial forms created by the industrial revolution, fosters industrial centralization. Although a system of workers' management based on the individual factory and local community would go far toward eliminating this feature. Or does the new technology lend itself to a system of small-scale production, based on a regional economy and structured physically on a human scale? This type of industrial organization places all economic decisions in the hands of the local community. To the degree that material production is decentralized and localized, the primacy of the community is asserted over national institutions, assuming that any such national institutions develop to a significant extent. In these circumstances, the popular assembly of the local community, convened in a face-to-face democracy, takes over the full management of social life. The question is whether a future society will be organized around technology, or whether technology is now sufficiently malleable so that it can be organized around society. To answer this question, we must further examine certain features of the new technology. The New Technology and the Human Scale In 1945, J. Presper Eckert Jr. and John W. Mauchley of the University of Pennsylvania unveiled ENIAC, from now referred to as ENIAC, the first digital computer to be designed entirely along electronic principles. Commissioned for use in solving the ballistic problems, ENIAC required nearly three years of work to design and build. The computer was enormous. It weighed more than 30 tons, contained 18,800 vacuum tubes with half a million connections. These connections took Eckert and Mochley two and a half years to solder. A vast network of resistors and miles of wiring. 
the computer required a large air conditioning unit to cool its electronic components. It often broke down or behaved erratically, requiring time-consuming repairs and maintenance. Yet, by all previous standards of computer development, ENIAC was an electronic marvel. It could perform 5,000 computations a second, generating electrical pulse signals that cycled at 100,000 a second. None of the mechanical or electromechanical computers in use at the time could approach this rate of computational speed. Some 20 years later, the computer control company of Framingham, Massachusetts, offered the DDP-124 for public sale. The DDP-124 is a small, compact computer that closely resembles a bedside AM radio receiver. The entire ensemble, together with a typewriter and memory unit, occupies a typical office desk. The DDP-124 performs over 285,000 computations a second. It has a true stored program memory that can be expanded to retain nearly 33,000 words. The memory of ENIAC, based on preset plug wires, lacked anything like the flexibility of present-day computers. Its pulses cycle at 1.7 billion per second. The DDP-124 does not require any air conditioning unit. It is completely reliable, and it creates very few maintenance problems. It can be built at a minute fraction of the cost required to construct ENIAC. The difference between ENIAC and DDP-124 is one of degree rather than kind. Leaving aside their memory units, both digital computers operate according to the same electronic principles. ENIAC, however, was composed primarily of traditional electronic components, vacuum tubes, resistors, etc., and thousands of feet of wire. The DDP-124, on the other hand, relies primarily on microcircuits. These microcircuits are very small electronic units that pack the equivalent of ENIAC's key electronic components into squares a mere fraction of an inch in size. Paralleling the miniaturization of computer components is the remarkable sophistication of traditional forms of technology. Ever smaller machines are beginning to replace large ones. For example, a fascinating breakthrough has been achieved in reducing the size of continuous hot-strip steel rolling mills. This kind of mill is one of the largest and costliest facilities in modern industry. It may be regarded as a single machine, nearly a half-mile in length, capable of reducing a 10-ton slab of steel, about 6 inches thick and 50 inches wide, to a strip of sheet metal a tenth or a twelfth of an inch thick. The installation alone, including heating furnaces, coilers, long roller tables, scale breaker stands and buildings, may cost tens of millions of dollars and occupy 50 acres or more. It produces 300 tons of steel sheet an hour. To be used efficiently, such a continuous hot strip mill must be operated together with large batteries of coke ovens, open hearth furnaces, blooming mills, etc. These facilities, in conjunction with hot and cold rolling mills, may cover several square miles. Such a steel complex is geared to a national division of labor, to highly concentrated sources of raw materials. 
generally located at a great distance from the complex, and to large national and international markets. Even if it is totally automated, its operating and management needs far transcend the capabilities of a small, decentralized community. The type of administration it requires tends to foster centralized social forms. Fortunately, we now have a number of alternatives, more efficient alternatives in many respects, to the modern steel complex. We can replace blast furnaces and open hearth furnaces by a variety of electric furnaces, which are generally quite small and produce excellent pig iron and steel. They can operate not only with coke, but also with anthracite coal, charcoal, and even lignite. Or we can choose the HYL process, a batch process in which natural gas is used to turn high-grade ores or concentrates into sponge iron. Or we can turn to the Viberg process, which involves the use of charcoal, carbon monoxide, and hydrogen. In any case, we can reduce the need for coke ovens, blast furnaces, open hearth furnaces, and possibly even solid reducing agents. One of the most important steps towards scaling a steel complex to community dimensions is the development of the planetary mill by T. Zenzimir. The planetary mill reduces the typical continuous hot strip mill to a single planetary stand and a light finishing stand. Hot steel slabs, two and a quarter inches thick, pass through two small pairs of heated feed rolls and a set of work rolls mounted in two circular cages which also contain two backup rolls. By operating the cages and backup rolls at different rotational speeds, the work rolls are made to turn in two directions. This gives the steel slab a terrific mauling and reduces it to a thickness of only one-tenth of an inch. Senzamir's planetary mill is a stroke of engineering genius. The small work rolls, turning on the two circular cages, replace the need for the four huge roughing stands and six finishing stands in a continuous hot strip mill. The rolling of hot steel slabs by the Senzamir process requires a much smaller operational area than a continuous hot strip mill. With continuous casting, moreover, we can produce steel slabs without the need for large, costly slabbing mills. A future steel complex based on electrical furnaces, continuous casting, a planetary mill, and a small continuous cold-reducing mill would require a fracture of the acreage occupied by conventional installation. It would be fully capable of meeting the steel needs of several moderate-sized communities with low quantities of fuel. The company I have described is not designed to meet the needs of a national market. On the contrary, it is suited only for meeting the steel requirements of small or moderate-sized communities and industrially undeveloped countries. Most electric furnaces for pig iron production produce about 100 to 250 tons a day, while large blast furnaces produce 3,000 tons a day. A planetary mill can roll only 100 tons of steel strip an hour, roughly a third of the output of a continuous hot strip mill. Yet, the very scale of our hypothetical steel complex constitutes one of its most attractive features. Also, the steel produced by our complex is more durable. 
so the community's rate of replenishing its steel products would be appreciably reduced. Since the smaller complex requires ore, fuel, and reducing agents in relatively small quantities, many communities could rely on local resources for their raw materials, thereby conserving the more concentrated resources of centrally located sources of supply, strengthening the independence of the community itself vis-a-vis the traditional centralized economy, and reducing the expense of transportation. What would at first glance seem to be a costly, inefficient duplication of effort that could be avoided by building a few centralized steel complexes would prove, in the long run, to be more efficient as well as socially more desirable. The new technology has produced not only miniaturized electronic components and smaller production facilities, but also highly versatile, multi-purpose machines. For more than a century, the trend in machine design moved increasingly toward technological specialization and single-purpose devices. Underpinning the intensive division of labor required by the new factory system, Industrial operations were subordinated entirely to the product. In time, this narrow, pragmatic approach has, quote, led industry far from the rational line of development in production machinery. Observe Eric W. Lever and John J. Brown. It has led to increasingly uneconomic specialization. Specialization of machines in terms of end product requires that the machine be thrown away when the product is no longer needed. Yet the work the production machine does can be reduced to a set of basic functions. Forming, holding, cutting, and so on. And these functions, if correctly analyzed, can be packaged and applied to operate on a part as needed. Citation 17. Ideally, a drilling machine of the kind envisioned by Lever and Brown would be able to produce a hole small enough to hold a thin wire or large enough to admit a pipe. Machines with this operational range were once regarded as economically prohibitive. By the mid-1950s, however, a number of such machines were actually designed and put to use. In 1954, for example, a horizontal boring mill was built in Switzerland for the Ford Motor Company's River Rouge plant at Dearborn, Michigan. This boring mill would qualify beautifully as a lever and brown machine. Equipped with five optical microscope-type illuminated control gauges, the mill drills holes smaller than a needle's eye or larger than a man's fist. The holes are accurate to a ten-thousandth of an inch. The importance of machines with this kind of operational range can hardly be overestimated. They make it possible to produce a large variety of products in a single plant. A small or moderate-sized community using multi-purpose machines could satisfy many of its limited industrial needs without being burdened with underused industrial facilities. There would be less loss in scrapping tools and less need for single-purpose plants. The community's economy would be more compact and versatile, more rounded and self-contained than anything we find in the communities of industrial advanced countries. The effort that goes into retooling machines for new products would be enormously reduced. Retooling would generally consist of changes in dimensioning rather than in design. Finally, multi-purpose machines with a wide operational range 
are relatively easy to automate. The changes required to use these machines in a cybernated industrial facility would generally be in circuitry and programming rather than in machine form and structure. Single-purpose machines, of course, would continue to exist, and they would still be used for the mass manufacture of a large variety of goods. At present, many highly automatic, single-purpose machines could be employed with very little modification by decentralized communities. Bottling and canning machines, for example, are compact, automatic, and highly rationalized installations. We could expect to see smaller, automatic textile, chemical processing, and food processing machines. A major shift from conventional automobiles, buses, and trucks to electric vehicles would undoubtedly lead to industrial facilities much smaller in size than existing automobile plants. Many of the remaining centralized facilities could be effectively decentralized simply by making them as small as possible and sharing their use among several communities. I do not claim that all of man's economic activities can be completely decentralized, but the majority can surely be scaled to human and communitarian dimensions. This much is certain. We can shift the center of economic power from national to local scale, and from centralized bureaucratic forms to local popular assemblies. This shift would be a revolutionary change of vast proportions for it would create powerful economic foundations for the sovereignty and autonomy of the local community. And that is going to do it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. You can also go to patreon.com abnormalmapping to support the network there and get plenty of bonus shows for your support too. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.